The author Augustine Burroughs once wrote, I myself am made entirely of flaws, stitched together with good intentions. The same could be said about the narrator of John Andrew Frederick's new novel, The King of Good Intentions, Part 3. So you're probably thinking at this point, wait a second, Part 3? Does that mean there are two books before this one? Well, yeah, it does. Should you read all three? Of course you should. But before we get to all that, let's do a proper start. My guest today on the program is the author, John Andrew Frederick. Let me tell you a little bit about John Andrew Frederick. The Virginia-born John Andrew Frederick is an author of several books, including one on the early films of Wes Anderson. But he also happens to be the brain trust of the beloved band The Black Watch, whose extensive body of work is an endless orchard of sonic joy. If you know their stuff, you know the deal. If you don't, jump in and grab anything they've ever done and work your way forwards and backwards through their nearly 30-album discography. You will not be disappointed. As for John's The King of Good Intentions trilogy, I think the linear approach here is the way to go. I mean, you don't read Harry Potter and the Goblet of Ice Cream before you read Harry Potter and the, what, <laughs> crumbling real estate market? I don't know. I don't know my Harry Potter, but okay, you wouldn't read The Return of the King before Lord of the Rings. Wait, or would you? Did I get that wrong too? I don't know. Maybe that's exactly what you're supposed to do, but clearly my Tolkien knowledge is very limited, just like my Harry Potter knowledge, but you get my point. In The King of Good Intentions Part 3, the final volume of the series, which in every way is the return of the king, Frederick continues to chronicle the misadventures of the 90s indie rock outfit The Weird Sisters. And there's a great deal to chronicle. Love, love triangles, misunderstandings, madcap episodes, and utter rock and roll chaos. Frederick writes with undeniable narrative velocity, comedic charm, and a big, big heart. His sentences are fresh and vibrant, and it's hard to think of anyone who can craft a better paragraph. The language here is elastic and joyful and commanding and playful, and every page sparks with literary momentum. So John's a good friend of mine, and we both share a tennis and academic past and present, and the fact is he's a joy and a blast to talk to. This one's super fun. Here you go. Me and John Andrew Frederick having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. to write a trilogy do you know that you're writing a trilogy oh or? okay there you know in are we starting now are we on the clock as we, it were? we're on the clock Chuck. okay all right alex anyway you know, by the really, second. it's so good to see you i you know this is that I, I have such fond memories of the the last stereo members chat chat we had and you know you're the best Anyway, I'll just say that obsequiously to begin with. Um, before, Very kind. I, before, no, I mean, it's not kindness. It's just the truth. Um, but I didn't set down, um, contrarily, to, to write a trilogy. I sat down to write, to successfully write a novel, which you know yourself as a novelist is quite a daunting task if you let it be. I mean, there's a certain amount of naivete that goes into this going, you know, in the same way that 
you kind of snicker perhaps as I do when people say like, I've got an idea for a novel. Hemingway said everybody's got a novel in them. So if good old Papa said that, maybe it's true. And all I've got to do is sit down and write it like, okay, mate, you know, <laughs> be my guest. You know, it's, yeah. it's among the most arduous, strenuous things you could possibly do. So the notion of me doing it, you know, three times over, it's just I finished the first one and I thought, okay, well, I left it as a cliffhanger perhaps involuntarily I mean I don't know how you work but I don't I don't plot anything I feel like I'd be terribly bored if I had to just fill in the you know the color in it within the lines so to speak you know I don't know what's going to happen I create characters and then I let them you know do their thing Nabokov said that with his puppets you know he's my favorite writer along with you know Tolstoy or whatever or Proust and he said you know uh, when they questioned him about it, he said, you know, I know every move exactly. And I think I, I, I would c consider that, um, ter uh, you know, arduous on top of ar arduous, um, you know, onerous uh, sort of sort of task there. I want to I want to remain in a mist, in a mystery myself. So when I finished the first one, I left it as kind of a cliffhanger because that seemed kind of like a neat trick. Um, to just go like, you know, it, the, the, they, they do, the, the Weird Sisters do this gig at USC and Jenny's kind of found out that John has, you know, cheated on her and he doesn't know whether to own up to it or try to explain it and her ex-boyfriend's in the picture and the drama just seemed to build at the very end when I'd exhausted my, you know, or maybe I'd not exhausted it, but I, I, I felt like I'd reached a, a point where I could stop like a painter looking at a painting going, uh, let it try to tell me when it's done. But in a way you kind of, I don't know, who was it that said, maybe you'll know, the paintings are never finished, they're just abandoned. And so in a way I kind of abandoned ship, but then I came back to it, you know, and it got nice responses and some good notices. And, you know, this, uh, a, a really nice bit in the, the Los Angeles Review of Books, which nobody expected it to, have and then I went back to it thinking gosh you know my band's on hiatus again we're in between making records maybe I should you know take up my pen again and um and start writing an another one and I wrote the second one and that came out on Rare Bird and then I thought well I may as well keep going because that one ended cliffhangerishly right uh, as well I yeah. mean I you know I guess I think Harold Bloom said, I keep on dropping all these names. You're going to need a broom to pick them up, Alex Green. Uh, you know, like da-da-da. Um, but, you know, he said, poets have, a, have, a, have an obligation to write themselves out. And I think, you know, um, that might be true for your oeuvre, you know, the, the final, you know, Alex Green novel or short story collection or whatever it is you want to do. You might reach reach the end. V.S. Nepal often said, you know, perhaps I'll fall silent. So maybe I wrote I, I wrote myself out of that. There certainly won't be another. And what I'm trying to say um, very haltingly <laughs> here is there, there won't be any more indie rock stuff from me. I'm not going to write another book that takes place in that in indie rock world, whether it's the 90s where the king takes place or or afterwards. I pretty much have exhausted. I've written myself out as far as that goes. But you know that world so well. I mean, it's you're you clearly know the terrain better than anybody. And I think it gives the book this kind of foundational heft and authenticity. Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, it was hard one. 
uh, you know, um, of sort of sort of knowledge. That's that's for sure. Um, that well, vogue yeah. term, that vogue term, I hate so much. Lived experience. You know, like why do we have? Why does the word lived has have to be in there? You know, did you experience it while you were dead or in a coma or something? Sorry to anybody who's in a coma who's watching this. Like, give me time. Maybe I'll put you in one. But um, you know, I mean. Uh, uh, like novels have to be, and I'm cribbing this from Mar Martin Amos, you know, um, God rest his soul, uh, that he said novels have to be about at least two things. So, I mean, it, it, that could, I could have written about the, a love story and a tragic story of betrayal, you know, in any kind of, in any sort of realm that I knew about. It could have been in the tennis realm, you know, which I have lots of experience in, in as a, uh, as a, you know, convinced uh confirmed tennis bum or whatever or in the academic realm as well um you know either of those either of those two or maybe even in the art art game um but that's just it just it seemed like that was as a satirist as somebody who thinks that there are not enough comic uh, comedic novels in in the world for people to laugh at in these you know drear dreary dark times you know it just seemed like that occasions so many candidates for satire i mean the 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 the, the zany crazy you know ego megalomaniacal people you meet in the indie rock world i mean you you you, you just interview uh, artists for the most part you're not you're not going like well hi hi there um Suzanne I know you book this club in Chicago so it's not like you're talking to them I mean you might meet them when you go to gigs or whatever or booking agents or people who work at record labels and or who are wannabe scouts and that kind of thing that's where the true or or the punters you know who want to come up to you after the show and tell them all about them tell you all about themselves how many you know how, how many conversations it sounds like i'm you know really bitching about something i shouldn't about but you know i mean i'm a sub subjected from time to time with crashing bores as much as or if not more than 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 you know lots of people so you know to have somebody come up to you after the show and say hey man that was a great show you know like so cursorily you know before they get this thing out like well i have these seven inches from the go-betweens and they remind me of you and like have you ever heard of the bats you know like where they want to talk about themselves in a way and you know it's one of those things where you kind of have to sort of um you know bite your tongue along with your your, your patience sometimes and just indulge indulge that because it, they were nice enough to come up but it's more about them than it is uh, about you not that things all have to be about me but whatever yeah but i find that music fans and fans of books are different with the people that they admire very people much so music, i mean i find that music fans tend to attach nostalgia right yeah to to the the musician so it is always about them because the music is time stamped in this moment for them and this experience with them they can't get past that whereas people who um, ask questions of writers uh, or get books signed, they always want to know how you did it. It's almost like a magic trick. They always want to know what your process is. Yeah, I think that's very true. I can't remember who who it was, but I think it was Francine Duplessis Gray, and this is about the 17th name I've dropped, but God, you know, do you I don't want to take these. 
I don't want to take credit for these wonderful quotations, you know, these pithy little bits. But I think she was asked on some talk show, you know, how do you do this? What magic do you practice? What sorcery? And um, and she said, people are always trying to get at something as though there's there's some formulaic uh, motif that I can give you. And first of all, stop doing that. Stop prying into this because it's just... First of all, it's a Pandora's box, and it's also maybe a Pandora's box that I might struggle to 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 pry open. Yeah, um, you know, like that that's that that fascination with something again. It sort of dovetails with my statement too about people who say like, "Oh, I've got a novel. I just have to sit down and and write it," as though you just wave a magic pen as a wand, uh, and you know this this thing will come. Uh, I I I I wish people would give up on trying to find the secret of creation i mean they've appropriated and i sound like a super curmudgeon here but that's what i identify as anyway a jolly curmudgeon oxymoronically i, I identify as that you know uh, of people of in uh, this neologism of uh, of the of creatives nothing irks me more than than that term or people quote unquote identifying as a creative like i'm an artist you're trying to encroach on my turf without and the turf of all of my fellow, you know, true true makers of of artistic, uh, you know, the things of objects and and um, things in the ether too, um, or films, and you know, like you know, get them, get off, get out of, get off my lawn, <laughs> you know, just you're 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 not willing to to um, you know uh, undergo the, the you know innumerable tribulations and you and I could talk about that this for, for for we could bore everybody forever about this about how difficult it is to be a true artist and to be true to your art as well um, you know for, for people to just call themselves creatives because they're it's like the advertisements for an apartment that's not in Beverly Hills, but it's Beverly Hills adjacent or whatever. So you get to live next door to the people who have it, you know, have it great. But, you know, you're assuming that that we, we all have it great when we don't. We don't have it great at all. I mean, we have it great on on lots of levels, but, you know, we also have it, you know, super rough because it's not an easy it's not an easy road to hoe. I mean, when somebody uh to, to somebody came up to me on the tennis court the other day and said john you chose the three hardest things academia music and writing fiction um that there are and of course my glib response is i didn't choose those things they chose me i mean i didn't have a i didn't have a choice i wasn't going to become a mathematician i sat there during you know science class just drooling onto the test you know the tests in high school and university so you know there wasn't anything else i could have done really well, I, I remember I was moderating a, a conversation with, I think it was with Lou Burney, who was an old professor of mine, and he's a, a, a great novelist. And um, somebody asked him his process. And he said, I don't know, I make a cup of tea and I sit down. And this woman said, what, what kind of tea is it? And he goes, I don't know, maybe it's like mint and she wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, yeah, that's so great. Where's her mystery novel? Um, yeah, right. He could have wound her up, you know, by, by saying like, well, you take a spot of Darjeeling and throw in right. a little bit of Earl Grey, not too much Lady Grey, but enough to be polite or whatever. And then some magic mushroom tea or whatever. So, <laughs> But people want to know the secrets. And I, I understand it because it does feel to construct a book does feel um, like a bit of a magic trick. It is, a, it is a beautiful thing to wrestle from the ether. Um, 
there are a lot of things I was thinking about this because you and I both um, have dwelled in the college realm. There's nothing worse for my writing than teaching. Did you find that that was the case? And now that you're not, no. teaching, you find it's easier or no, I didn't, I didn't find that. Um, I, I found that I was, I was so often frustrated by teaching that I could take my frustrations out in savage ways upon my characters, you know, sort of like by proxy, I could, um, you know, take, take the ways in which I took, I, you know, I mostly taught freshman composition for 25 years. Occasionally they'd throw me a creative writing class and that would be worse because all they'd want and all the students would want to know most of them, except for, you know, a couple, uh, uh, just a, a couple every sem uh, semester or quarter um, would just ask, like, how do you get published? Like, well, how do you get through a paragraph first is what you should focus on here, here, uh, writer kid. Um, so, you know, you spend, spend a whole, whole lot of time just going like, oh my God, that's, this is, this is why you're, you're, you're going to end up as a creative because you, you don't understand that it's not about, it's not about th that play, playing that game at all and the, the sort of, you know, quasi fame that comes as a result of it. I have a question for you because I'm way more interested in other writers than I am in myself. Somehow, do you have to have an opening um, that you love before you carry on or do you do you go back to the first? I mean, not necessarily an overpoweringly wonderful first sentence, um, but just a, a whole opening um, written before you can carry on with the rest of the novel? Or do you write the opening just to get going with the caveat that you can just come back to it later and massage it around? Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I think a little, I think I like the opening to be striking and a little bit weird. And um, because I know that I would put a book down you know, which reminds me of my one of my favorite all-time cartoons from the New Yorker is there's this guy talking to this woman in a, and he's in his living room and there's another guy on his couch reading kind of angrily. And the guy says to the woman, oh, that's the guy that I hired to read Proust for me. <laughs> right? Like, nice, yeah. <laughs> like, I love Proust too, but boy, it took me a long time to get to get into those first 20 pages. And so I, I'm sort of the anti-Proust where I want the opening to be instant for me more than anybody else. Because if, it, if it's not instant, I might, I might turn off. Well, you know, the books of yours I've read, they do open weird. I will give, I will give you that. You've succeeded. You succeeded you. In, no, I mean, if that's, that's your, that's your goal. And I mean, I think that's a, that's an approach where, um, you know, a certain reader's going to go, okay, I've got to, I've got to carry on with this and, and find out, you know, why he or she did this. And, um, and of course they're going to be intrigued by that, so, that, that sort of, um, thing and um i think it takes just as much um patience um for to do proust as to as to to, to read people who open open up with very quite of let's put it uh, like a, let's use the word disorienting perhaps where you don't know what's going on and i think those those sorts of readers have a a sort of um identifiable curiosity somehow rather as opposed to the types who just who want it laid out in a very pat sally rooney kind of you know fashion of you know knowing what's going on from from the outset 
or whatever. But I think I think your experience with Proust is this similar to mine. It took me four or five times over a span of four or five years in grad school um, to make it the, through the recherche. And then after, after afterwards, you know, I, I read Nabokov's, uh, you know, notes on it. And he's going like the first half of Proust's fairy tale is great. The second half, it's it's just so much, you know, treading the same ground with different characters and stuff. And I'm like, I wish I would have known that beforehand because I made it all the way to the end going, okay, what prize do I get here, you know? Um, well, that, that's all. When you talk about the idea that that characters kind of appear on the spot to you, which I really love. I love, I think I'm similar in that way, but I love that idea. But do you find that you get attached to them or you can move on from them easier or harder when they sort of, in other words, do you do you fall in love with them easier when they sort of occur to you the way that love actually happens, where like there is no forethought, it's like a bolt of lightning, um, mm -hmm. or are you more detached because you're not, you haven't um, sort of um, been marinating with them for so long? Oh gosh, I think again, I'd have to beg off and say I write to find out what they'll do. And so I, a criticism could be leveled against me. Maybe this is a preemptive strike on my part to anybody who reads The King Part Three, um, that I think there are a couple characters that I spend too much time with them, that that might've been a, 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 a process of discipline that I should have perhaps let them go earlier, that I was, you know, again, I was having too much of, of a good time. I can tip my hand and say, you know, one is the um, scrunch character that John I meets. Say that. That, that John meets you know and the video shoot i mean he's kind of like that person i don't maybe alex you have somebody in in your life like this a really fascinating character who just can't seem to let you go you can't just sort of extricate yourself from this they're often you know crashing boars who want to tell you about what punk rock shows they went back to back in the day or whatever but this guy was in the in the realm of movie production as a you know as a as a grip or a lighting guy and um you know i was just having so much fun with him being mindful kind of of a criticism that had been leveled of the earlier books of of my narrator being somewhat condescending towards characters while you know not seeing the human um uh um side of somebody who's ostensibly needs to be satirized in a way for all of their you know quirk, quirks and um, pretensions or whatever so maybe it took me a little bit longer to kind of develop the ways in which um, the narrator starts you know he at first he can't seem to want to get away fast enough from this character who's a crashing bore but amidst crashing bores and this is what you know I might have been uh, you know uh disparaged by by some of my friends before of going like why can't you just be more patient and kind with people instead of expecting them all to just come out with these dostoevsky and kind of you know fascinating narratives or whatever i mean maybe i'll try and work on it um in, instead but you know maybe amidst that you can find something that's terribly endearing or if not profound in those in those sorts of people but you know he was that's a composite of people I have in my life a couple of record producers in fact um who just will natter on and on and on you know incessant incessantly and you know I always get sucked into those kinds of things I find it very difficult to walk away because they they're actually really good really interesting people um but the, you you know at the same can you be a crashing bore and a really interesting person at the same time that's kind of what I tried to limb in that section of the book but I 
think if I were to criticize my own book, I'd go like, okay, he hangs around a little too, too long. Please just get in the truck and get back to your, you know, or maybe it was just the, the, a product of the character going like, if I stop listening to this guy, I'll, I'll, I'll have too much time to think about what I just did. I just kissed a girl and I have a girlfriend and I fought, started to fall in love with someone and idealizing this, this someone. So maybe this guy's a wonderful distraction for my guilty conscience, you know, the character's guilty conscience, you know, about what just transpired. But I love that character because he's totally on brand because he, the point is, is that he doesn't go away fast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and then, you know, I don't know. Do you have any friends like that or acquaintances where, I'm you know, just like, them, who, John. I, I, I'm not asking you to name names. <laughs> I think we all, we all have some scrunch in our lives. Okay. All right. Very good. That's well put. Um, so, yeah. Okay. okay. I, you know, I, I think that comes with the territory, especially when, and this is the case of some, you know, uh, a couple, a couple of produce, record producers I know, or musicians, where their social life is their work life, and so you know they treat it like it's um, you know cocktail hour while they're working in a way because maybe they don't have that much of a social life beyond because um, you know it's a very demanding job. My son, um, who's a, a, a teacher, uh, teaches high school special ed and and then honors English um, in a schizoid sort of way. Chandler, uh, who just came with me to Austin to make the new the Black Watch record. He'd been on, you know, doing guest spots, but here he was totally in, integrally involved for a week and a half that we spent in Austin. It was wonderful. But he he's been fancying because the teaching world th these days is so hard and there's so much bureaucracy and you know so, so much woke conscious stuff for me that takes away from the focusing on you know teaching kids to read and think and write. But Chandler was just fantasizing in the midst of a tough year last year at the school he taught and uh, taught out in Santa Monica he's going like I love music my friends make music I think I have great taste maybe I'll become a record producer and he produced he ended up producing this friend of his that he went to read college with his record and he just after a week and a half he goes this is way too hard of work this is lying to people all the time saying you know that was a really good take but let's do it again or yeah this is a good song you know when you're thinking oh this is a dreadful song it shouldn't even see the light of day or whatever and you know the long hours that are involved and the amount of just listening you know studies have been done about how making a record and you know as mu musicians everybody thinks like oh you're a musician you just swan in and act like the rolling stones circa 1971 or something it's not like that at all i mean you have to be you know so so on so focused and you know uh, because it's so expensive for the most part um to, to go into a, a proper recording studio um it's really really exhausting you know sort of work especially being in charge of a you know a a, a recording process so you know it's it's hard work but yeah a lot of a lot of times people their social life is their work life and i think it leads them to become kookier and kookier perhaps you know, and I mean, without kooks, what would I have to write about, Alex? <laughs> I have to, I should thank all the kooks. Yes. Well, when you are writing satire, isn't it true that nobody's safe? 
you know what I mean? Like, well, yes. Um, you know, I mean, maybe you'd say the same thing. I mean, the, uh, I, I'm just a treasure trove of writerly quotes here. Joan Didion said, you know, I might as well throw in Joan so that people don't complain. Like you didn't, you didn't include so many women. Like, like who do you want? George Eliot, Flannery O'Connor, you know, goddamn Jean Reese, my favorite. Um, Didion said writers are always selling somebody out. Um, but then again, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you could necessarily point to any real, I mean, the person I'm often selling out in a self-castigating, you know, lapsed Lutheran kind of way is, you know, myself, you know, I take me to task um, as much as I, as much as I do, you know, act like this Holden Caulfield ish kind of character, you know, and just, you know, kvetching about every, everybody and all, all the, all the world. But at the same time to just go, you know, he's looking quite self-consciously, the narrator is looking at himself, just going like, who are you to say this kind of stuff? Well, you know, it's like I always say, I'm on the side of arrogant people, not conceited people. I used to ask my students all the time, what's the difference between arrogant and conceited? They're not the same, you guys. You guys conflate them. Um, they're not the same, just the same thing like with cynicism and pessimism. And, you know, they, they'd struggle and struggle and go, okay, here's the deal. An arrogant person doesn't think that they're amazing, uh, like a conceited person does, think that they're the cat's pajamas. An arrogant person just thinks everybody else sucks. <laughs> so, you know, kind of to come to have a, an arrogant narrator like that is also sets it up for a kind of meta -com comedic kind of thing, too. Well, while, you know, like a mise on a beam boxes within boxes sort of motif, you know, while, while he's making fun of everybody else, he's making fun of himself making fun of everybody else just going like why am i why am i doing this why what what you know what, am i so am i so great well perhaps in comparison to these you know these these unmitigated kooks and pretentious types you know in the record industry whose names are legion but shall remain unnamed yes well did did writing a character like that as the narrator did it give you a kind of freedom that you wouldn't have had if he was a, I don't want to say a nicer person, but let's just go with that. Okay. Um, yeah, there's something, yeah, there's something there to um, sort of like, I mean, I mean, I read, a, I read something recently from, I'll quote this as well, um, from, from Christopher Hitchens, who said, teasing is often a sign of great misery. And I thought, oh my God, that hurts so much because I've had several girlfriends whom I teased, it seems, I mean, they, they spoke up after a while, you know, relentlessly somehow. And I, it, it just, you know, sort of like um, uh, ex post facto, you realize like, wow, I must not have been terribly stimulated by that person if I, if I ended up teasing her. Um, some and that that wasn't very nice obviously I mean she might have laughed at the time but there might have been like a delayed reaction to it so I mean it did give me a certain amount of license but I imagine there might be some readers warning ahead who might want that license revoked I mean there's been a couple of reviews on Goodreads for the, the the past couple of records of going like god um I I hated I hated this narrator he's so negative He's so above everyone, but I kind of had to keep reading 
in order to find out if he was going to come to some sort of cathartic re revelation of, you know, that, that that wasn't really serving his turn. You know, I mind you, I would remind people that the, 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 the kids in the, in the all three books are in their late twenties where mm -hmm. you wouldn't, you know, at your, at your age, at my age, I wouldn't want to go back to that time. You know, when people say like, we, we, if you could do it all over again, God, I wouldn't want to do it all over the, uh, all over again, because, you know, the, the, the hubris involved in a lot of that when, especially like when you're living in the, the shallowest city in the world, you've got you Northern Californians, you don't know anything truly about how, what a, what a swamp of egos LA is. It's unbelievable. Swing, swing a tennis racket or a dead armadillo and you'll hit a million people that are just walking around right outside my little studio, you know, who are just expecting the world to come to come to them and who only talk about themselves and aren't interested in other people or literature or, you know, or, or, or really, you know, they're interested in how, how to make it and how to become famous. And this is a, a pestilence, of course, that's just been spread even further. What a wonderfully positive interview this is turning out to me. <laughs> I'm well, I do trying think to go easy on myself and the world and I'm just digging a, a, a deeper trench. Who is a is another narrator in a in a book? I'm trying to think of who whose tone is like this, um, or whose attitude. I was trying to think of a good literary companion. You want me to come up with it? You want me to spill my secrets? I do. I don't know. You know, I reread the book, um, of course, a couple times before um, it was, you know, going to be published here on um, the 12th of September, um, 2023, or whatever year it is. And um, I thought, gosh, you know, the shadow of Holden Caulfield hangs heavy over this narrator. Um, certainly early Martin Amos, um, the sort of callow youth too, too bright for his, you know, shiny boots um, is there. So you could throw in, you know, Martin Amos's early, early comedic novels, the narrator um, that, that's there that certainly, you know, certainly those are quasi-autobiographical. I think those two people always want me to like confederacy of dunces hmm. and I don't find it funny at all. Me either. They're, I, always I never... they're always disappointed when, you know, like, do you like John Kennedy tool? Your writing reminds me a little bit of John Kennedy tool. And there's, you know, uh, you know, seemingly vulgar things and, you know, like um, arrogant things. And he's acting like, you know, Jeeves, a uh, uh, vulgar Jeeves or something. I'm going like, I didn't find it funny in the least. Yeah, I didn't yeah, laugh at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, give me Kingsley Amos, you know, give me um, Stella Gibbon, who did, uh, you know, Cold Comfort, Comfort Farm, um, you know, way fun, way funnier um, for me, or P.G. Uh, Woodhouse, uh, you know, um, for sure, but um, in, 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 you know, in bits. But yeah, I guess, I guess you could say Holden Caulfield, a, a more grown-up uh, Holden Caulfield, who's found his, you know, metier, and you know wants uh, wants wa wants to do the best he can can with it. You know Holden had his vulnerabilities, and I think how did you handle vulnerability in in this book? Oh gosh, um, I'd welcome some theory on your <laughs> on your <laughs> on your part um, to to do that. I I I mean I try to write tenderly at times when a character's you know in that dark night of the soul 
sort of thing, realizing the ways in which, you know, I, I can liken it perhaps to my own life where people ask me, you know, do you have any regrets? And I say, yes, certainly the times I've hurt people, but I don't regret, you know, that I didn't go to, um, you know, a, a year abroad in Spain, my junior year of college, or um, that I, you know, split up with somebody, you know, like broke someone's heart or my heart was broken. I don't, I, I just regret the times where I maybe I've done something that was um, reprehensible, you know, morally, which of course every, we, we all have done, whether we know it or not, you know, um, so I would, I would sort of liken it to that. So that when a character is fully aware of like, oh my gosh, that wasn't cool. Um, um, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Then I try to make that a tender and poetic moment to, again, round out the character too, who's also at the same time so concerned with his own desires and ego and, um, but also smart enough to be self-aware of that, of just going like, this is, this is hurtful. This isn't cool. I mean, madly ambitious people have this quandary, I think, you know, just going like, well, this is my nature to be, to want to, you know, succeed on my own terms. Somehow it's not up to me whether this book sells in the thousands, millions. Um, it's, it, it's up, it's, it's just up to the fates. Um, some somehow so all one can do is do the best one can do and then again you know it doesn't seem to be very progressive um, to castigate oneself or, or whatever but to forgive oneself for that kind of motif and move on so I try I guess I tried to write really sympathetically and poetically to any of the characters who are having this you know these moments of of remorse because there is quite a bit of drama um, that that takes place in, in the course of of the novel and you know in a way I'd, uh, I'd again refer to to my earlier begging off to say these are people in their late 20s who think that they know what they're doing but who are kind of like um overgrown dangerous toddlers <laughs> you know <laughs> who, who are toddling who are toddling around it around the indie rock world you know um like not like bumper cars <laughs> emotional bumper cars um somehow so no, no more arcades for me. I mean, I think that there probably was a good degree of bumbling for you as well in your. In yeah, your, sure. You know, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, then again, um, those those sorts of things may have led to to sort of you know to other other things. I I, I reckon, and um, a lot of times it's not up it's not up to one. I mean, I, I'm, I hardly believe, like I met a guy in the tennis court the other day, this guy from um, Honduras, Carlos, who also teaches kids. And um, he's, he's the first person I've ever met in my life who denied that there was free will. You ever met somebody who believed in predestination, who wasn't necessarily a Jehovah's Witness knocking at your door or whatever? I just, it did my head in, Alex, for about three days of going, I can't, I mean, I can't argue that I do have free will. What if this next sentence that I, uh, I, I utter was written in the, in the stars or, you know, in, in the stratosphere? I mean, you can't, you can't argue against it. You can't argue for it. It's just like a pro the prospect of, you know, of, of a divinity. And um, that, that kind of, you know, that sort of, it sort of gave me pa a serious pause for a for a little while. It was like somebody blowing a huge bong hit right in your in your face. <laughs> it made, made me very very stoned and stunned for a while because I I don't know. Have you ever met anybody who didn't believe in free will and thought everything that happened to us is fated? Not at the tennis court. 
Yeah, right. There you go. Maybe in a pub or somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, that's a very boozy kind of conversation to have because it seems like I don't know how that would come up between sets. Oh, I mean, I just, you know, I'm I I like to dig into people's religious beliefs. You know, I like to find out whether they, you know, because it's, of course, a dwindling sort of thing. And I'm, you know, a very, very liberal Christian. Um, so I would say, you know, gosh, um, you know, I, 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 I couldn't possibly, I'm the sort of liberal Christian who just goes, I couldn't deny the, the validity of Hinduism or Judaism or uh, Islam or anything like that. I would never say like, well, you're going to hell or whatever. It's just something that's just, I was, you know, raised in the, in the church and went to church till I was 19 and Bible study in Sunday school. I mean, I don't go anymore because I'm not a joiner. Um, at all, but I always like to find out what people think about, um, you know, what their what their spiritual lives are like, or what their religious lives are like. Not in a condemnatory way, of just just out of curiosity, because I, I think it's a nice thing to talk, a nice thing to talk about if it's if it's understood that there's going to be no judge, you know, judge not kind of you know motif here. So I just happened to ask my friend Carlos um, if he believed in God and. He said he wasn't sure, but he certainly believed that that someone had a plan <laughs> had a plan for him. And then you know I used this in the days that I the several days after where I was walking around in the days and talking to my friends, you know, like ringing people up, just going like, "Hey, can I talk to you a minute? I met a guy that believes that everything's faded, and I'm kind of traumatized by it or whatever." And you know I got varying, very interesting responses from that from people. You know, people either said, "Huh, I never thought about that. That's possible," or to other people going, "What a cop." out he's just trying to blame all his mistakes on some you know prime mover or, or what have you but you know it's just i mean i like to, i i hate small talk i like tall talk i can't i can't abide talking about the weather and any of that kind of stuff so yeah i mean it's cost me people have you know especially lady people have gone like john you're just too you're just too intense <laughs> um, okay i guess too too intense for you but you know well, you're, maybe you're, as a lady philosopher, some somehow who wants to sit around with me and talk about Kierkegaard all day or whatever. You're you're as um, tonally feisty as your narrator. Well, you know, let's not. You know, I always say um, it's a quasi autobiographical <laughs> thing, and it's kind of a jeu d'esprit for me to have named this character John just to play a trick on the reader. And people people have called me out on it. Believe me, Alex. You know, have gone just like you. You admit almost like they're like this um, Jabert character or whatever, you know, uh, or like the, the Dreyfus case of going, Jacuz, I know that's you, come on. You know, the cover of your book is, you know, like the first drawing is like, it looks like a, a caricature of you. I go, yeah, so? And, you know, like, yes, you know, we, we both like rhubarb pie. I, 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 you know, of course, watch out for the, you know, watch out for people who play games with the reader. You must have to understand that. You know, um, my favorite writer is Nabokov, who did, was nothing but, a, you know, a chess player with his um, the, his pawns and stuff. So but yeah, you know, sure. At the same time, I'd be it would be remiss of me to say, like, there absolutely that's not me at all. I mean, you know, everybody draws from life and I put a lot of myself, my satirical self in there. I mean, I think and I may have stated this to you before, but I think satire is the most moral genre. This way of humbling things, you know, like true humility coming from humbling someone, and he gets his comeuppance in the course of the narrative, you know, just oh, yeah. as much as the quote-unquote villains 
villains do and it's almost like a chaucerian kind of thing where the the ladies get off scot-free you know and um that that was chaucer's whole thing you know um with with fablios and all of all the canterbury tales that the woman is always somehow blameless so ladies stop complaining about the patriarchy please you guys have got it got off throughout history got off <laughs> pun intended, not intended was was your worry that I know we talked about this a little bit. Was your worry that people would get not angry, but that people would miss the point and they would sort of um, think that it was not, uh, how can I say it? Because we talked about this, that people would sort of be insulted by the narrative, especially in the third book. I'm not because I've been I've been asked this uh, um, with with respect to the records where somebody in the band or close to the band has said, you know, are you thinking of the listener? And I said, maybe it sounds callous or callow um, of me and I don't care um, to say, like, I'm thinking of the, uh, the one listener myself. I make music. I make music that I want to hear that I, mean, I make records that don't exist because i want something that i'll enjoy listening to doesn't mean that i sit around listening to my back catalog all the time though i don't believe people who say like oh i made that record i we made you know uh the unforgettable fire and we never listened to it again like what you should uh, you know certainly i make things i want to hear and i write things that i want to read and i mostly write to make myself laugh thinking you know perhaps in a you know quasi-egotistical way of thinking like I have a great sense of humor especially because I know I can laugh at myself in fact I, I maybe court it for some so every once in a while I don't mind being the butter brunt of a joke I have way too many clever friends to be sensitive sensitive about that um, but I, I write to please myself without thinking of you know how people are going to respond um, to this in a you know in a censorious um identity politics kind of world other people are going to be reading this wanting to call you out for you know you weren't that inclusive it wasn't that diverse or whatever or, or, you know or, or whatnot and if they want to focus on that you know bless them let them go right ahead but i i don't have anybody in mind except for my i what i would hope is both my higher and my lower self the low comedy kind of slapstick person who loves a pie in the face you know sort of motif as much as he loves a, a super witty Oscar Wildean kind of quip and my higher self to just go, I want to write something that, that, you know, as a person who's read a lot, who's listened to a lot, I want to, I want to write and write songs that I, th- I think are really, really um, substantial and interesting and fun and um, profound, even you could say. So, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking of an audience. Do you think of an audience when you're writing? No. Yeah. So why the heck did you ask? Did you ask me that? Do you think I was thinking of thinking of my, my readers? No, no, I didn't think so at all. But okay. I no, not at all. But I was wondering if you were bracing yourself for for the backlash from your readers. Oh, you know, they can. I mean, that's it's again, it's not it's not it's not up to me. I'm I'm a risk taking person, you know, um, in in my personal life in terms of saying saying things that I might, you know, that risk offense somehow. I mean, it's sort of like, 
um yeah it, it's the it's the it's it's sort of like the human condition that that we that you know the, the parameters of that we are free that i might say might say something or you might something say something that i would you know be taken aback by or take offense at or whatever so that we could work it out later later on if somebody you know again um it's like uh, if to get a reaction out of somebody i don't think i'm necessarily provocative pro provocative but maybe sort of i mean unconsciously or consciously just real that sounds like such a patsy of a term but you know this is it's just sort of like the the kind of person who goes this is how i really am take me or leave me kind of, yeah. kind of sort of thing and mostly that sort of person is not exactly palatable um but at the same time for for a writer i mean if you, you can you could throw put the book down i mean people in my family who are my biggest fans the king part two some of them got halfway through the book going why did you write this this narrator is just we loved the first one so much but this narrator has become unhinged you know i'm going like well you know gosh uh, I, I think i included this bit in my book on wes anderson um that he talked about how he likes watching people who are coming unhinged or unglued somehow that that's revelatory to you know perhaps um the type of you know even keeled person uh you know who 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 isn't not capable of that um that might be really interesting for them you know the blocked kind of person to watch some and it's also it's it's also very comedic you know a hard day's night opens with shake buying some milk from a carton at the beginning of the beatles you know first film and masterpiece you know where he's trying to get open some milk and he's ripping it with his teeth and it just goes all over him and he throws it in disgust on the on the streets of london or or whatever and you go that there's great you know comic uh, potential in that of watching somebody you know un unravel you know there's various various ways you know multi multifarious ways to come unglued and my particular way might be you know might be might not be for everybody but that's okay that's all right you know um certain there's certain certain people like i don't know ali smith whose novels i've never been able to get through but some people you know love love her writing and uh, you know sort of like uh, urge me to to try again and read her stuff it's just it's not for me so if it's not if, if my books aren't for you then oh well but at least you know give, give him a chance no knowing that you might laugh despite yourself while you're tisk tisk tisking you might just kind of being tee hee heeing at the same at yeah. the same time you know well because that remind that actually brings me to what i was going to say which is this book is really fun i mean the king part three is thank a blast you. thank you well, maybe I had to get through, um, you know, what um, certain members of my extended family might have said that, you know, like dragging us through the King part two to get to the more gloriously funny. But thank you very much for saying that. I do think that it's really, you know, when you use that, people use that term rollicking or zany, that it really truly is that. I mean, you know, I'm an 18th century guy. I love Smollett. I love Sam Johnson and Boswell and um, I, I, I love Fielding and, you know, Richardson isn't exactly a, you know, a, a hoot, but, you know, that's where all that, that age of satire is what it's called in all of your college courses. And so, I mean, it, it was, it wasn't like I was a romantic poets and, you know, 19th century novelist guy in grad school. It was only later on when I realized, oh my God, this is my century, the century of censure you know, in a way, and, and, and in a way that, you know, I'm coming back to my, 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 my theme, my little hobby horse, 
or, or Tristram Shandy. I think that's the, that's the book, you know, maybe that might be vainglorious for me to liken my novel <laughs> to that masterpiece. Tristram Shandy, another book that it took me a long time to get into. I mean, that this is a book kind of for harem, people who don't mind a harem scarum kind of narrative, you know, who did, that's kind of, you know, wanders all over the place. I mean, we'll get there at the end, but it's discursive, that's for sure. Obviously, I am discursive too, because you've let me run on and on. <laughs> the crashing boars that I satirize. But you are you have thanks, heard. Alex. Is this your way to subvert me here? Is that what's no, going on? No, I don't I'm think not anyone, paranoid. I'm just joshing you. Nobody would ever accuse you of being a crashing boar. I shamed. I don't have as I don't have as many re readily accessible. You and I haven't, you know, don't don't get to chat um very often, which is a great shame. But I gotta tell you, I mean, in Los Angeles, I don't have very many people that I can talk to about books and music and this sorts of sort of death it's more tri trivial you know who was the third bass player for fog hat kind of thing or <laughs> deep purple or whatever you know it's just like I, I that's what i miss about being at, at a university that's for sure that i i used to have used to be especially in grad school that not a day went by that i didn't have a fascinating conversation um with somebody about things that meant you know meant too much um to me and perhaps to to them but i really appreciate this too i mean um, let's um, let let's do it again. Not necessarily for stereo embers, but you know, just to hang. We've been talking about getting together to play tennis for yeah. years already. That's not good. Well, and listen, we'll be playing wheelchair tennis before you, before you know it, or I and am. Listen, you know, you can always pick up the phone and and call me in the middle of the night. And I'll be happy to talk books and music. Thanks. Yeah, Great. of course. Uh, and by the way, just to close with, the king reminds me that satire is kind of a lost art. You know, please don't say that because I mean, how, are you saying that it's run its course? No, or that, or that no. we live in a kind of post ironic world? No, I'm saying I think that people don't do it that much anymore. And I think that's a shame. Why do you why would you theorize that? Why? Why? Well, why? The, the stuff that I don't see a lot of books like The King and I don't see people and i think people are worried you mean sometimes. you mean this little old thing right here <laughs> that, yes that handsome volume i think people are afraid that they're going to be misinterpreted and so i think that satire is a lost art in the sense that people don't want to try it because i think that it makes them nervous well i mean there are lots of books these days you know called the new puritans um, you know, Andrew Doyle's book about the new Puritans or uh, another another acad academic with um, Douglas, what's his name, Murray, um, who's who wrote a book on the uh, Bosey, you know, Oscar Wilde's he's a gay, prominent gay conservative guy of just going, we are we're we're we're, uh, we're suffering as a result of people, writers and painters and musicians being fearful of, you know, of, of investigating sides. I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an apolitical person, but my, my kid kind of dragged me into that political realm. I'm, you know, and I, I, I regret it because he's found a way to get out, get out of being overly concerned with politics and identity politics in particular, but it just, it just seems like a, a, that it's just a great shame that people just can't have civil and respectful discussions and differ about worldviews and and political views as well. I'm I would declare right here in front of you and 
God and man and, and Arthur Ashe, that I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid at all. Um, I, I, I went through the ringer the last few years uh, as an academic, as a, uh, as a professor who was immensely popular and also, you know, kind of feared because I, I, I told the students like, I'm, I'm, I'm here not, not, not to find out what I think, but to, to find out what you think. And so I, I run a really rigorous class. I would, I would kick students out if they hadn't read the poems or short story for the day. I'd say, bye-bye, you know, come back when you grow up, as it were. You know, like you don't get to participate now. And these days you'd be pilloried for that, not being inclusive. Like they they would invent a million excuses for the kid. Like he couldn't, you know, his he forgot his lunchbox or something. Like these are these are university and community college kids. They're supposed to be adults. And, you know, I, I was chastised a number of times in the last couple of my years of just, you're way too hard on these kids. I'm going, this is how I was taught, uh, you know, sink or swim kind of thing. You don't have to be here. Um, you know, not college isn't for everybody. I'm, you know, this egalitarian person who just kind of goes, you know, if you if you don't dig it, if mommy and daddy are the ones who are your impetus for getting an education, don't don't do it. Some of the most brilliant people I know dropped out of high school. You don't have to go to college. Like, of course, they didn't enjoy enjoy that because it's about numbers for you know uh, the exorbitant prices that they you know charge for people to go to SC or St. Mary's or what have what have you so i mean i've i've been through it enough so just like what do you got throw it at me i'll i'll, I'll either just go okay sorry you feel that way or go ahead you've got every prerogative every right to to feel like that if you you feel as though you know one of my characters said something one of my characters said something about which you disagree you have to remember that this is fiction and um and this also takes place in the very very politically uncorrect 90s where you know people could get away with um, saying stuff and or you know there's same amount of people who especially in Los Angeles and especially in the music realm everybody inter intermingled there wasn't this division of you know of uh, I I represent this flag or that flag or whatever it might have been generically of going like oh man there's heavy male people over there you know or th those are just a bunch of indie rock pussies you know or, or what have you it, it had to do with much more harmless divisions within the genre of, of, of music or, or poetry or what have you than it did with, you know, identi identities, etc. Everybody was more way more concerned about, you know, finding their tribe to have a have a good time rather than creating supposed straw enemies. But yeah, I'm not I'm not afraid. Let I, I in fact, I would I, I hope somebody takes the book on and writes in a in the Atlantic or the New Yorker a wonderful you know castigation of this novel because it would it would make people curious about it I would welcome I'd welcome somebody try to dress me down um, somehow you know and and expose themselves for you know in, in some ways the Philistine that they that they might be not thinking like this is this is a joke there's a comedian called Jeff Dye who goes like hey you know, he starts his act. He goes, if I say anything offensive, I say anything too sensitive. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I don't care. <laughs> Just, I don't care. You know, and yeah, I heard an interview with Jay Moore, the comic, and, and someone said to him, how far is too far for a comic? And he said, there is no too far. I mean, yeah, no I mean, I think I don't know how how well versed or what, you know, how discriminating you are, or whether this is either your thing about um, you know, stand up co comics, but somebody like Louis C.K., you know, some people can get away with it. He says he says outrageous stuff. 
you know, um, the, uh, you know, unconscionable sometimes, but it's so, it's so uh, his, his audience knows that he's just kidding around. That's what I want for my gravestone. I'm just kidding around somehow, you know, that he knows they're, they're with him. He would, you know, never say these, you know, atrocious kinds of things in real life. He's saying them on stage you know, knowingly with his tongue so deeply in his cheek that, that you know, he knows that it's an outrageous thing to say. And I think the more savvy readers who come to my trilogy, you know, I would hope that the more experienced they are and the more willing they are to open themselves and suspend their disbelief and keep in mind that it is fiction that they wouldn't, you know, that, and if you lose some people and they get hacked off, oh, well, that's the way, that's the way it goes. I mean, I'm, I'm not that sort of writer. Uh, at all and so it'd be it would be you know um pretentious of me to to try to be this you know some somebody who wasn't um a bit provocative that's for sure all in the name of trying to make you laugh at uh, at, at people's pretensions and their 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 ninniness <laughs> to coin a term <laughs> uh look mazel on the novel on finishing a trilogy um brilliant work as ever thank you alex that's very kind of you to say that you know it means it doesn't, it, it means uh, more because I love your work too. So there's enough right there for a mutual admiration society. But I think you're great. I think, um, you know, that, that that's nice that, um, that, that you said these nice things. And I would say the same thing about your stuff too. He's a lovely guy, that John Andrew Frederick, and uh, his book, The King of Good Intentions 3, is a fantastic book. Get it, read it, wait, get the other two as well. Get the first two, get this one, read them in order. I don't know why I'm insisting on you reading it in order. You could mix it up if you want to. Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you want to start with number two, go to one and hit three. If that's the thing that you do, uh, don't let me get in the way. Get the book, get the books. Read them in any order that uh, is comfortable for you and uh, proceed. Don't let me impose my will on your reading pleasure. Uh, John Andrew Frederick is in The Black Watch. As I mentioned, theblackwatch.bandcamp.com is a good place to go to get some music by his wonderful band. Meanwhile, The King of Good Intentions 3 is available everywhere online. Barnes & Noble, Apple Books. Overdrive, Tolino, Biblioteca, Odolo, is it Odolo or Odilo? I don't know. Baker and Taylor, Vivlio, Smashwords, Box. it's everywhere. Pick it up and get it. It's so much fun. You are going to love it. You can follow me on what's left of Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. You can also email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. Tell people that used to be your friends. Maybe this is a way you guys can, you know, find your, uh, find your way back to each other. Maybe, maybe through the podcast, <laughs> you're going to rekindle your friendship or your romance. How about that? 
Maybe your friendship turns into a romance. All I know is I have no problem being the conduit for such intimacy. So do what you need to do, and best of luck to you. Let's close the show with a song by The Black Watch. This is all I know is that the moon is beautiful. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. To Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bob Shell Radio.